You're listening to The Bob Sadak Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Good morning and welcome to The Bob Zadek Show. As always, the show of ideas, not attitude. I'm Charlie Dice in for Bob this weekend, and I wanted to go over a couple of quick administrative details before we get to our guest. Uh, administrative in two senses. Uh, Bob has a new guide to the administrative state, which you can get for free at his website, bobzadek.com. It uh, details the, the predictions of the, the founders of the fourth branch of government. Uh, I'll leave it at that and leave you in suspense. But if you, if you go to the website and sign up for the email list, you'll get the free PDF guide to the administrative state. Find out what that's all about. And now I'd like to welcome to the show uh, a special guest. We've got Garrett Watson, who is Special Projects Manager at the Tax Foundation, one of the oldest tax-related nonprofits in the country. It's the nation's leading independent tax policy nonprofit, and they focus on issues of economic growth and opportunity related to the tax code. And I'm happy to have you with me this morning, Garrett. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Charlie. So the the specific topic that we wanted to deal with today was one of the Democratic presidential candidates' tax proposals. And this is Elizabeth Warren's plan for funding Medicare for All. You could kind of call this the elephant in the room. It comes with a price tag of, am I correct on this, that it has a $34 trillion price tag over the over ten a 10-year period? Right. That, that would be the total amount for, for the Medicare for All plan. So it's not every day that you hear numbers like $34 trillion. That's, that's the, the big leagues. Uh, what, what should an average taxpayer make of this in terms of how it is going to affect you know, their bottom line both today and going forward? It seems like she's trying to soak the rich. She's got this 1% language coming back into her campaign slogans and whatnot. But but is this the kind of thing that, I mean, my, my motto is to spend is to tax. So $34 trillion in additional spending that at some point is going to come back to the average taxpayer, is it not? Uh, yeah, so it will definitely have an effect on, on all taxpayers across the, across the tax system and across the country. Uh, the, the healthcare sector in the United States, as it's currently constituted, makes up about uh, close to a fifth of our uh, national income. So it's a massive part of our uh, what uh, both of our incomes and, and what we spend on. Uh, and this plan uh, would basically take um, all, almost all of that spending and try to push it into uh, the government. And so the, the way the plan is designed is it's, it's meant to uh, find a way to take all of the spending that's currently being done in the medical system uh, in the form of uh, payments to hospitals, to doctors, uh, premiums to insurance plans, uh, and get that all uh, basically converted into in the form of, of taxation to the government um, so that they may run uh, a single-payer system, uh, de facto single-payer system uh, themselves. Uh, and so what that means is uh, a big segment of the, of the population will be getting uh, uh, tax increases uh, to, to pay for this, um, which some of it may be offset by, of course, um, uh, reduced expenses in the form of medical care, uh, but that will not be true of, of everyone. Um, and it will uh, entail a, a very large uh, transition period. Um, and of course, uh, Warren is, is relying on a combination of uh, assumed savings that are pretty aggressive, about 14 trillion in, in efficiency, um, which has been questioned by um, by healthcare experts as being a little too aggressive, uh, as well as a pretty large number of tax increases, particularly on on the wealthy and the top one percent. Um, I'm happy to go more into detail into those, but um, that's sort of the big picture of what they're trying to do. Um, and no matter how you cut it, in terms of whether or not this is a net tax increase, it will be. Uh, have a pretty large transition costs for all taxpayers. So there's a little bit of this sleight of hand where the proposed savings are hypothetical in this sort of administrative scheme you're talking about. And I mentioned the administrative state at the beginning of the show. I don't know exactly how mm. Medicare for all would play into the the system of the administrative state, all of the executive agencies that are tasked with kind of implementing the law and writing the rules that that fill in the gaps of, of what our, our le- the, the legislation that's passed. But under a, a Medicare for All scheme, let's just touch a little bit more on that. What does that look like, the, the nuts and bolts of Medicare for All versus the current private insurance system? 
Right. So the the use in in Warren's case of Medicare for all is actually somewhat of a misnomer in that uh, Medicare is currently constituted, uh, while it does cover um, many of the expenses that folks, um, particularly the uh, in, in the case of Medicare um, older individuals um, incur, uh, there's still a large portion of, of cost uh, cost sharing. Right. There are actually are premiums depending on your income level that are required under Medicare. Um, many drugs may or may not be covered through uh, Medicare. Um, in Warren's plan, by contrast, almost all of that is covered completely by the government. Uh, there's no assumed cost sharing on the part of the, the taxpayer uh, in that case. So uh, it is actually not a merely an expansion of the existing Medicare system to everyone. Instead, it is actually much closer to a, a more traditional single-payer system with no uh, cost sharing, um, which, while not um, unprecedented internationally, is, um, is, is a more uh, aggressive uh, form of uh, nationalizing the, the healthcare system. Um, and that actually drives a lot of the, the costs that they're seeing in terms of trying to cover that via taxes. Uh, and so uh, the, the financing itself in, in trying to turn all that, those private payments onto the government um, include a combination of uh, both direct financing of Medicare for all by taking the existing payments. So think of um, employer contributions to private insurance right now, which makes up a large part of the financing for, for uh, insurance for private individuals, um, as well as state spending and moving that, instead of spending that directly on healthcare provision or on private insurance, it would all go directly to the government instead. And that's part of the financing for, um, for the, the system in an effort to try to maintain the existing level of, of taxation on, on those individuals, as well as a, a suite of business taxes um, as well as taxes on the wealthy um, that uh, will significantly drive up uh, the tax rates that those folks uh, incur. So let's kind of break it down. We're trying to get the numbers to add up to this $34 trillion. It's got to be either right. spending cuts, and that, Warren, you're saying is proposing will come from mainly administrative savings of, let me get this straight, is it that mm -hmm. the idea is that the government will just yep. be more efficient the, the, that's right. So, so we start with the 10-year cost estimate of $34 trillion, which comes from a, a, an estimate by the Urban Institute, which is already itself a pretty aggressive estimate. Some other folks, such as uh, the, the Mercatus Center, have estimated the total cost to actually be north of $50 trillion. Um, but the Urban study, starting at 34, includes some administrative savings and, and starts to that number. Of that 34, there's additional cost savings that the Warren plan assumes um, that would total about $13 trillion. And that, uh, those cost savings include more aggressive um, negotiations of drug prices, for example, to keep them lower, um, reducing the uh, reimbursement rates that doctors and hospitals get from uh, the government in, in, uh, in exchange for their, uh, their care, uh, as well as some administrative savings in terms of, you know, uh, think of the existing system of negotiating with multiple insurance, agent, uh, insurance firms, uh, having to deal with um, existing the existing administrative uh, costs that there might be some simplification there if you only had one payer in the form of the government. Um, the problem is even if you assume there's some savings there, um, there's there's evidence that um, there may be some double counting of administrative savings there, and it's way more aggressive than even the most um, uh, the the biggest proponents of of this kind of financing um, would claim. Um, particularly because you, there's only so far you can drive down both drug prices through negotiations and reimbursements before you start seeing a significant uh, blowback in the form of reduced innovation um, and people not wanting to be doctors or working in hospitals because those, um, those payments are, uh, are so low. Um, and so that, and, and note, that's only one part of the financing here. Um, but using those assumptions, that's where she goes from 34 trillion down to 20.5 trillion, that $13 trillion savings. Um, and the rest of it in terms of the breakdown is a comb the combination of the financing of uh, of Medicare for all through employee contributions. So that's about $9 trillion of it. It would be just taking the existing contributions that people make to their employers in the form of health, health insurance premiums um, and basically just remitting that to the government instead of the insurers. Yeah, so I want uh, I I to get into I want to get into that that uh, em employer tax, but before we get there, I uh, I want to ask a question. We'll kind of back this out one step. So, working at the Tax Foundation uh, in the in a in a place like D.C., that puts you in a camp with a lot of free market reformers. Is that right? Uh, th that's right, broadly speaking. And I wonder, I want to know what what is it like when you're talking about the healthcare industry and reforms of the healthcare industry? comparing it to the current baseline, because 
as people know, we had a, a major overhaul of the healthcare system uh, in 2010 with Obamacare, the Patient Protection Act. But is this a, a, a free market? I mean, we have private health insurance companies still, but is it hard to defend the current system or the, the, the private scheme against mm-hmm. something like this? It seems like we were sort of set up for this pitch a few years ago where now people's right. premiums are rising and they're more willing to go along with greater a greater takeover of the healthcare system. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is there sort of a, uh, a way to come, a, come at the Medicare for All program or, or Warren's modification of it without referring to the, the current system as a, a sort of free market baseline? Mm-hmm. Yeah, t- totally. I, I think it goes without saying that the we can definitely recognize, even market advocates can recognize that the current uh, healthcare system um, needs a lot of reform, uh, and that there are a lot of uh, problems. Uh, and that and that the the problem that folks like Senator Warren are trying to deal with is a, is definitely a legitimate one. Um, and the, and the part of the problem is people uh, have not been clear-eyed about what the problems are in the in the healthcare sector. And a big part of it is something that. You know, market advocates may um, have been trying to, to push for is, for example, just greater price transparency, uh, that there isn't um, in, in the healthcare system, uh, both going from primary care doctors to, to hospitals, um, from basic procedures to more advanced things. Uh, it's very hard to actually figure out um, ahead of time what, you're, what you'll be paying, both in terms of just the, the raw price of the, of the service you're getting, as well as how much you'll be paying for it versus an insurer. And that makes it a lot harder for market mechanisms to work in healthcare. Um, and so, uh, and that causes a lot of the, the cost issues we're seeing um, and a lot of the frustrations people have with the system um, that you're exactly right may motivate folks to think of a, another alternative, a more radical alternative in the form of things like Medicare for all. Yeah, it seems like there's this ratchet effect where each new government intervention leads to more calls for additional intervention. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at this, you know, $34 trillion in spending. The, the numbers almost don't matter at a certain point. It's just, a, it's a question of, it, it reflects the magnitude of government takeover of one of the most important industries, the one that, as, as you said, the, you know, the largest categories yeah. of, of spending, things that people actually have to, you know, their, their major expenses. And uh, what, what, what is that number? How big a percent is healthcare as a percentage of? total spending, roughly? It, it, roughly in the United States, it, it's sitting at about 18%, but it's rising every year as a proportion of, uh, of our total spending. And, it's, uh, and we do, as a country, spend more as a, as a fraction of our income than, than other countries do. Uh, and so that says something about some of the cost issues in our, our system. Uh, th- that said, of course, it's hard to compare because we are also a, lead, a leader in terms of um, innovation in healthcare. Uh, and so that, that's another aspect of it um, as we think about reform. On the tax side and in terms of the system more broadly, um, that we maintain that innovation um, while also trying to make progress on some of these uh, issues related to, to cost and yeah the, the unintended consequence of previous government interventions that it, that has got us gotten us here so far. So it's a major transfer from one of the more dynamic sectors of the economy uh, in the form of the well we'll we'll get in a second to the the actual taxes themselves. We talked about the administrative right. savings, and now we're going to shift gears, talk about the, the taxes themselves. Who does this money come from? And, and when we're looking at it as a transfer from one part of the economy to the government's administration of health care, where is that money coming from? The, that's right. The, uh, the, the, one of the biggest, um, as I had mentioned um, a little bit earlier, is going to be basically just taking the existing payments that are, that are being made in the system. Uh, mostly to private individual actors like insurance companies and hospitals and, and moving that to the government. Uh, so think of all of the, the payments that uh, employees and employers on their behalf make in the form of uh, premiums to insurance companies. Those would basically stay the same and would be remitted to uh, the government instead, uh, as well as, of course, uh, uh, payroll taxes that are being paid for Medicare and Medicaid, too, would just be remitted to the government uh, in an effort to maintain some stability, therefore, and predictability for those firms. Um, and then the, uh, the, the second half of it, uh, of the, the spending writ large, is going to be in the form of much higher business and uh, individual taxes on the wealthy. Um, and so uh, the, and, uh, there's a, it's actually a very long list, so I'll just give you the highlights here. One of the biggest, of course, um, and we can talk more detail about, about this type of tax, is the wealth tax. So 
a tax on individuals' uh, net wealth. So instead of income, where we think of your income stream every year uh, being taxed a certain fraction of that, you're actually taxing the stock of people's total wealth, their assets minus their liabilities. Um, Warren, of course, is well known for having advocated for a wealth tax of 2% of people's wealth uh, above $50 million and 3% above a billion. Uh, she doubles that top rate to 6% uh, on, on uh, wealth above a billion dollars, which she, she hopes will raise a trillion dollars to help with the Medicare for all financing. Um, there's also a suite of other taxes like uh, higher taxes on uh, capital gains income. So that's um, basically income derived from uh, people selling assets that increase in value. Think of a, you know, a house or a stock that's increased in value. Is the capital um, gains tax, on, is that included in the wealth tax or that's a separate? It's a totally separate tax. Yeah. So, so it's, um, let's, it's, let's stick uh, with the wealth tax. The, yep. Uh, the, so the wealth tax you're saying would account for one trillion, and this would be That's tax right. on ultra millionaires and billionaires. If you happen to be lucky enough to, or well, I shouldn't say lucky, but uh, if you happen to make it into the billionaire club, then you're just going to get slapped with a, an additional tax. So is that an incentive to kind of hover right around eight, nine hundred million dollars, or, or what do you what do you think? Yeah, it, it especially at six percent, it creates all sorts of perverse incentives to uh, avoid the tax. Be it yeah, maintain wealth under a billion dollars, uh, shift that that wealth to family members, so that while you may have de facto control over that wealth, it's not uh, taxable. Um, you know, shift it overseas or other areas where folks cannot uh, tax authorities either don't know that 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 wealth is there or, or makes it hard to to get to, um, or or translate that wealth into intangible assets that are much harder to value. Because um, the big problem with wealth taxes, you have to be able to value all the all the assets that these billionaires own, um, which may be easy for some assets, but actually can be very hard. And you think of you know the case of rare collectibles or a closely held firm that it doesn't have a market price. The authorities got to figure that out, and there's going to be a lot of yeah incentive to game that and to avoid the tax. Right, and let's get into some basic tax theory here. You mentioned in one of your articles right. that there are ways that the policy then in turn influences the, the actual available amount that you can tax. How does that work? I mean, you're talking about some of those ways with uh, transferring mm -hmm. money to family members, but are the assumptions that Warren is and her team are using to, to estimate how much they can collect from mm -hmm. this, are they overambitious on account of how people might start mm -hmm. to shift their money around? Right. Yeah. Some of the um, there's two things going on here. The first is the avoidance issue, which is uh, there is a significant overestimation of how much revenue can be collected um, just in the wealth tax alone. Just to take that example where um, the economists who are working with, with Senator Warren and her plan assume uh, basically a flat 15 percent avoidance rate. So 85 percent of the revenue that they should collect, they will. Um, and that's actually using um, a, a pretty low estimate relative to where experts think, think it would actually be, um, especially at 6%, where folks think it'll be upwards of 45 to 50% avoidance. And so when you run out the numbers using those updated avoidance, more realistic avoidance numbers, uh, you end up seeing that the wealth tax may raise less than half of what she's actually estimating overall. And so that would, uh, of course, increase the gap significantly in terms of the amount of money um, Senator Orr need to find elsewhere to finance, uh, finance the system. Uh, and the second related issue is uh, is the issue of tax interactions. And so Senator Warren um, and, and other Democrats uh, are basically stacking taxes on top of one another. Um, and in doing that, they're only estimating the revenue coming from those taxes in isolation. And they're not thinking of how a tax may impact uh, the revenue gotten from, from the other tax. So to take an example, right, uh, if you think of higher income taxes, which they want to do, a higher income tax is going to impact how much wealth people can accumulate over time, which is going to reduce how much revenue you can get in a wealth tax. And so uh, you have to think about the interactions between different taxes, which can get pretty complicated whenever you're doing a revenue estimate. Um, and what this means is, yeah, the, the if anything, the estimates for the total revenue collection here are, are much higher than what you could reasonably expect, given both the avoidance and the interaction effects. And what about the effects on just overall economic growth and innovation? Yeah, this is another issue that's pretty, uh, I think, um, understated by advocates of, of higher confiscatory taxes on the wealthy, um, or just overall. Um, we're currently in a situation in the United States where dynamism and innovation are 
uh, on the decline. When you look at startup rates, when you look at rates of productivity growth, all the indicators are trending in the wrong direction. And uh, I think there's a reasonable concern that if you increase taxes to very high levels, the incentive for folks to get into uh, very hard work in an effort to innovate, particularly in, in startups and in, in those environments, uh, goes down uh, significantly. Uh, and actually, in one, in one study, just to give you a sense of the magnitude here, uh, they estimate that, uh, some economists estimate that uh, if you get to tax rates north of 80%, which many of these plans do when you add them together, uh, quality-weighted innovation goes down by 40%. So think of the amount of innovation we're having now uh, in the tech space, elsewhere, cut that by almost by half, and that's where we'd be if, if many of these taxes were enacted. Um, and that's just one estimate in terms of thinking about the effect there. Um, and so while we, we do want to think about the administrative problems and we do want to think about the more narrow growth question, um, it may also have secondary effects in terms of uh, the incentives for folks to not just engage in market activity, but engage in an innovative activity that uh, really improves our lives over time. So one of these interactions that you're talking about that can change the, the size of the tax base is this interaction with innovation and technology. And you said it can, mm-hmm. it can decrease it by up to up as much as half? Right, by approximately 40% at the, at the highest uh, uh, levels, according to one estimate, um, which is basically because people, are, once you get to that level, are going to choose different career options, um, especially in the face of risk. If you think of someone who... Um, will take a lot of risk to start a, a startup, which could be the next, you know, big, big, the next Amazon or the next big company. Um, they may decide to go into other occupations that are just as remunerative financially, um, but don't involve the same amount of risk. Um, and so that that's basically what's driving the effect. There is um, not necessarily the existing innovators, right? We're not worried so much about them because they've accumulated a lot of wealth. They like what they're doing. It's the folks who are now just starting out who will make very different calculations uh, if they feel like uh, the return to their hard, risky work uh, is going to be much, not just lower, but um, almost effectively eliminated once you get to the top end of the, of the tax rates. Earlier, I said kind of tongue in cheek that people who are at the $800, $900 million mark in terms of wealth might be reluctant to cross over into the, the uh, trace, trace commas club, the, the, the billionaires. Right. But uh, I think for a lot of people, and I'm sure that Elizabeth Warren's supporters would fall into this camp, they say, come on, that's ridiculous. No one's, no one's, when you get that rich, you don't care, you know, that it, it's all just a number at that point. I think that this is maybe a failure of people to think like an economist and to be able to think at the margin. And I have a story about this. When I was in college, it was uh, 2010. I think I was a sophomore or a junior, and it was right around the time that the Patient Protection Act was passed. And I was a, a zealous uh, libertarian crusader for the, the uh, you know, the opposite of everything that was happening uh, in politics at the time. And so when Obamacare passed, I, a little bit of a malaise set in. Sometimes I say, you know, Obamacare made me sick because for months, I don't know if it was coincidence, but, but something about this period put me in a funk and it started to manifest as these actual kind of physical symptoms of uh, just unwellness. And and I think that my thinking at the time, uh, I, re- I remember having this train of thought that, well, if this is the direction that the country is going, what's the point of my continuing, you know, on, on a trajectory? Why do, do I want to become a, a, a productive member of society or do I want to you know, go and live on the beach or something like that? And, and I thought maybe a, a scaled back, more simple life, would be uh, would be the way to go, and and in some ways, I think that 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 thinking has carried over into my lifestyle, for better or for worse. Um, I'm I'm you know ha- happy with the the course that my life has taken, but I, I can imagine that there are millions of other people who subconsciously or consciously are are following what's going on in politics. They're following the mood of the country and which way taxes are going in the future, and it does influence people's decisions. I think. But I was curious when you were talking about the the estimates of reductions in innovation, how are these measured? Is it sort of a survey of people, or do they are there more sophisticated economic and statistical models that are used? What what goes into those estimates? 
Right. Yeah, this is, a, I think, an exciting emerging area in, in the, the economics of innovation. Um, and, and there's a couple of different methods. Uh, one is to actually look at uh, basically uh, data related to superstar innovators and inventors, often using things like patent data um, and looking at how those patents are used over time to figure out how impactful they are. And then looking at the behavior of those inventors uh, based on changes in, in tax rates. And so often you'll see folks both... Um, uh, migrate away from high tax areas or, or change their, their decisions on their, uh, their work moving forward. Um, and yeah, using some, some controls uh, through some statistical estimation, uh, we can establish uh, what the impact would be uh, by changing tax rates um, higher or lower on the total amount of innovation. Um, and, and, you know, th this all, of course, comes with a caveat that you hinted at, right, which is that, um, of course, tax policy is only one one, uh, one aspect of people's decision to enter an innovative activity. There is a, of course, an intrinsic uh, enjoyment of that, of that work. Um, people um, need to be exposed to innovative ways of thinking in order to get into innovative activity. And so while it is only one margin by which people decide whether or not to engage in the activity, it is an important one. And if anything, the one major takeaway is that it's the impact of taxes is uh, nonlinear. And by that, I mean, at low levels or moderate levels, it only has a fairly marginal effect on innovation. But when you get to the, these very high tax rates, that's where you see a major impact. Um, and I think it says a lot about, you know, the even if you look at the innovative state of the United States versus other high tax countries, it says a lot about that, um, that relationship. Uh, and uh, that's why it's particularly relevant in the context of these um, recent tax plans which unlike others, which merely, for example, change the top tax rate from 37% to 39%, um, we might not expect a big impact there, but when, yeah, once you ratchet that up to north of 80%, um, people are gonna start thinking about their long-term plans and think, okay, wh what are ways in which I can uh, engage in this activity but not take on all the financial risk if there's not gonna be any return? Right, I'm speaking with Garrett Watson, who is the Special Projects Manager at the Tax Foundation in Washington, D.C., and we've been discussing Elizabeth Warren's uh, Medicare for All proposal and the taxes that come along with it, the implications of those taxes, and what it might mean for you and for your family. We're going to go to a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss the exciting topic of tax incidents, give a little lesson in how, uh, how taxes work their way through the economy and, and f f how that burden is translated onto the average American. So uh, Garrett, stay with us and we'll be back in just a quick minute. I'm Bob Zadig, broadcasting here every Sunday morning at 8. Remember the free speech movement? Started in Berkeley in the 60s. At Berkeley today, students protest against free speech and picket when a controversial, usually conservative speaker is scheduled. At other top universities, professors are terrified of their students. The free exchange of all ideas has disappeared. My new book, The Bubble, explores how higher education became America's most overrated product. Students spend four critical years of their lives in an expensive bubble of indoctrination, and they're creating a second bubble in the process. Luckily, a small, dedicated minority is fighting back against repressive campus speech codes and disinvitation campaigns. Learn how universities have created a bubble within a bubble, a trillion-dollar financial bubble in student loan debt propped up by a bubble that protects from offensive speech. Now some are even suggesting student loan forgiveness. It's time to burst the bubble. Book now available at bobzadek.com. Okay, welcome back. I'm here with Garrett Watson from the Tax Foundation, and we're diving into the exciting topic of tax incidents. And I actually mean that uh, sincerely. I think that this is one of those counterintuitive areas of economics where uh, giving people a little bit of understanding can go a long way towards making our political system less dysfunctional. I'll never hope that we will get to a completely functional place in politics, but uh, so shifting gears onto this question, we, we started to touch on the, the the payroll tax or this new kind of payroll tax that Elizabeth Warren insists is not really a, a, a payroll tax or is not a tax on workers. Wh what are the other ways that, uh, besides the wealth tax, that Warren plans to fund this $20.5 trillion price tag if God forbid she ever have the opportunity to put it into place. 
Uh, right. Yeah. The, in addition to the, to the wealth tax, there's um, yeah uh, a suite of other taxes that that she's considering. One of which you mentioned here, which is the the, the payroll tax that will effectively swap out for um, for for existing payroll taxes uh, that are levied in, in uh, for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and and a big problem with that tax, and it's a great example of of uh, tax incidents that you just mentioned, is that it's actually going to be levied basically as a per head cost for each employee. So right now, it's the payroll tax is levied on a percentage base of your income. So if you make $100, it's a, a fraction of that income. So as you make more income, you pay more in tax. Uh, the, the Warren payroll tax in this case is actually a flat cost per employee. So looking at a firm's costs for their insurance, they remit 98% of that amount uh, in tax. And, and the problem with that um, in terms of incidence is uh, it doesn't matter how much an employee makes. Uh, it's the same amount of cost per employee. And mm. so it's what we would call a tax policy regressive in that it actually harms or has a bigger impact on lower paid workers than higher paid workers. Um, and so what, what, how does that catch out in terms of the economic impact? Well, we can think of that as uh, basically an additional cost that uh, firms must uh, pay to employ these lower wage workers. Uh, and that will change their decision-making in terms of uh, whether or not it makes economic sense to hire those workers or, or retain those workers if they already have them on payroll. And so we would expect that there may be, uh, in that, that decision-making, um, a reduction in wages to offset that increased cost, um, or there might even be uh, layoffs in some cases. Uh, and so despite the fact that this payroll tax is being uh, legally is owed by the firms, what we call economic, or sorry, what we call legal incidents and in tax speak, um, the economic impact, the burden of the tax itself due to the, uh, the, the economic decision-making of those firms is actually going to lay on the workers. And in the case of the design of this tax, it's going to be the lower wage workers. And so it's a good example of thinking about not just the first order effect of here's a tax for imposing it on the firms. The firms will, will collect it and will remit it. We're, we're all good. Um, thinking about the second order effect or the unintended consequence, which in this case would be uh, potentially lower hiring or lower wa wages for these low-income folks who otherwise wouldn't be impacted as much. It's a genius rhetorical move and a political ploy to come up with a tax plan that appears outwardly to be borne entirely by the rich. And I went on to Elizabeth Warren's website, and she's got this billionaire tax calculator, which you say, first, the first question is, are you a billionaire? Yes or no? So I say, no, I'm not a billionaire. Then it gives me an option of picking from any number of high-profile billionaires, from Jeff Bezos to uh, uh, Charles Koch, who is the, the one that I clicked on, just to see what would Charles Koch pay under Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax next year. And it says that based on his net worth, $43 billion, that he would pay $2.5 billion just in that one year. Um, and, and I'm not trying to muster up uh, sympathy necessarily for the billionaire in this scenario. And I think that, again, from a persuasion point of view, most people who are already on the left or in Warren's camp are not going to be feeling particularly sympathetic. But how can we translate this number into something that, that that matters to the average person. What what are the effects of this? Maybe this goes back to the innovation question. Right. Yeah. I, I think there is the the innovation impacts which we we previously discussed. Um, in addition, in addition to just thinking about the broader impact on uh, in the short to medium run of people's um, incomes uh, due to due to decreased investment. Um, and so we would expect that um, the wealth tax, in addition to any other tax, is going to um, basically drive up how much um, money, uh, particular investors, including billionaires, have to um, get from any particular investment to cover the tax. It's a pretty intuitive idea, right? And what this means is that um, on the margin, when we think like economists on the margin, um, that investments that were previously profitable at a given tax rate are no longer profitable because there's that additional tax that makes the investment not make sense to move forward on. And so what that means is um, it's what we call a tax wedge where uh, there's a greater tax wedge that decreases the amount of profitable investments available to um, anyone who is subject to the tax. Um, and, and we would expect, uh, as economic theory suggests, that uh, investment is basically what drives the productivity of, uh, of workers and by increasing the amount of 
uh, of capital available in the economy. When you think of all of the machines and technology available to us uh, that's available via investment that improves our productivity uh, when we're working, uh, that will not be uh, as available uh, and will therefore translate in the long run to lower, uh, lower incomes for individuals um, because our, our incomes are tied very closely to our productivity. And so that's the broad sort of nutshell version of the, the, the tax theory that, uh, that may drive uh, the impact on, on individuals, uh, on everyday taxpayers, despite the fact that the tax is not being levied on them uh, directly. Um, and uh, some folks will rebut, and you may hear this in some of these conversations, that, well, you know, the world is awash in investment in capital, and we can always get investment from abroad, folks who may not be subject to the tax. Think of a, a French billionaire who's not, who's not subject to the wealth tax, uh, may invest in the United States instead, you know, take up those investments, um, which is true. But what that means is all that income that was available to us originally now goes to the French billionaire and our incomes are still lower. And so we have to think about not just the impact domestically, but on the impact internationally. And in this case, it would just mean, yes, uh, the same amount of investment, but lower incomes for Americans and higher incomes for foreigners. And so that, that's another important distinction that you may hear in a lot of these tax conversations is how it will benefit folks internationally versus domestically, given that there's a lot of capital to invest uh, abroad. You made another underappreciated point in another one of your articles. And I want to mention people can find your work at taxfoundation.org. Uh, you're also on Twitter at GS underscore Watson, Garrett Watson. You mentioned that investors and entrepreneurs, they, they discover the opportunities for profit that otherwise would go unnoticed. What is that discovery process? And Yeah, that's a very important important question when you think about what, what is the role that entrepreneurship plays in, in economic growth and in driving you know, better lives for everyone? Um, and a big one, and, and this is uh, something talked about a lot by um, the economist Israel Kirzner, which is, uh, as well as, uh, as just a Trump hitter, which is uh, that uh, what distinguishes an entrepreneur from other actors in the economy is they are alert to profit opportunities, to differences between the prices of different inputs and the prices of the output that they ultimately create. Um, and while that seems like a pretty mechanistic process that can actually, it requires a lot of risk taking, requires a lot of trial and error, uh, and a lot of alertness to, to see opportunities out there that others do not, because the nature of the, the system is that if, if an opportunity was already seen by others, profit wouldn't already exist. Someone would have taken that profit already. And so it is a, very much a process of, of discovery in that these folks have to be alert to opportunities that folks otherwise would have either dismissed or not seen. You know, when you think of, just for the, the prototypical example that really illustrates this, prior to 2007, the release of the iPhone, uh, a lot of folks in both, not just consumers, but, but experts in, in the cell phone industry thought that a device similar to the iPhone was actually a non-starter, that that was not the future of the industry, that folks would not like it, that the tech wouldn't work. Um, there's a lot of skepticism of this. Um, and incumbent firms didn't think that was something worth investing in. Uh, but folks like Steve Jobs and his team at Apple um, thought differently. Uh, and uh, they saw an opportunity uh, and they were alert to that opportunity in ways that others who currently were in the system uh, were not. And as a result, they, of course, uh, profited tremendously and created a lot of value for all the consumers of, of, of iPhones now who otherwise wouldn't have, have benefited had they not been alert to that. Sort of bringing this back to tax policy, we have to think about what are the incentives to be to have that alertness and to discover that profit. Wh what message are we sending in the form of public policy um, if we start enacting and erecting confiscatory tax rates um, that don't reward folks for that discovery? Because the flip side of this is there are plenty of entrepreneurs who may have thought they discovered something, but then find out that they were wrong in taking that risk and lose a lot of money. So that has to be priced into people's decision-making of, if I'm gonna take that risk and, and potentially lose a lot of money on this, this discovery, uh, I need to have that upside potential to make it worthwhile because there are plenty of opportunities in today's modern economy to engage in well-paid work without that risk, right? And right. so uh, that, that, that's right. an important thing to, to establish from a tax policy perspective. The iPhone example undermines this point about capital not being a homogenous pool. So even if there is a big pool of capital that can come from abroad, in the end, it's not capital that innovates, it's the individual entrepreneurs. And so I think, again, it comes back to who do you want making the big picture economic decisions in the country. Do you want how many million there, millionaires are there in, in America now? There's, there's thousands, tens of thousands. Those tens of thousands of individuals each have a unique vantage point to be able to see where there might be opportunities for, for innovation. 
which translate into opportunities for profit. It's a very different situation than the the administrative paradigm where we just hand all the money over to the federal government and hope that they will somehow find these cost savings or administrative savings. Garrett, I have another question uh, about the rhetoric behind this policy. Uh, she hones in on the 1% as uh, a particular target, and I can see why rhetorically that would be a, a good ploy. It, it, it makes for a catchy soundbite. But why 1%? It seems kind of arbitrary. Why not the top tax the top 10% or the top 0.1%? What is it about this 1%? I think the big thing is it does harken back to this to the rhetoric that was you know originally established, of course, in the Occupy Wall Street movement in uh, 2011, sort of as a response to the, the financial crisis and the Great Recession, um, which is framing an, an us versus them dynamic of you know the vast majority, almost everyone you know, 99% of people are um, at the whim of or or being exploited by a very small group of individuals, which uh, as you went here is a overly simplistic way to think about these interactions because there are benefits in the tax code accrued to folks in the up broader upper middle class, right? The top 10 or 20% that, that deserve more scrutiny. Um, and by, by pushing it to the top 1% or even, we're even now seeing point, the top 0.1% or top 0.01%, it avoids some of these harder questions about the nature of our, of the class system in the United States and how some folks derive wealth through, you know, erecting barriers to entry or creating preferences in the tax code that shouldn't exist. Um, by targeting a very, very small group of individuals. Uh, and, and while it's important to think about the tax treatment of, of the very wealthy uh, from, a, from a tax perspective, uh, it's, it's still, it still may end up distracting us from the broader questions of how we derive our revenue for needed government services. Uh, and related to that, of course, is the important point that most countries, actually nearly all countries uh, in places like Western Europe, derive their much larger welfare states from more broad-based taxes on the middle class and the upper middle class through things like a value-added tax or higher payroll tax. They have understood for a very long time that to fund a, a, a much larger safety net, including more public expenditures on healthcare, they need to have higher taxes on the middle class and the upper middle class. And that's some, that we have not gotten to that point in the conversation. Instead, we are trying to do this while just uh, targeting the very, very top. And I, in, in my opinion, that is not going to end up working. There will have to be a, re, a rediscovery of the actual trade-offs involved to get the revenue needed, which is just, we want higher services. We're going to need to actually pay for them through higher taxes on most of the population. Right. It seems like maybe Europe, for whatever flaws there might be with uh, the higher tax burdens that go along with a, a value-added tax, at least they're sort of honest about it. And, and maybe they get a, a benefit from being honest, whereas if you try to sneak taxes in through the back door or just pin them on the scapegoat like the 1%, they still end up trickling down and uh, burdening people in the same way, but even less efficiently. That, I, I think that's exactly right, uh, in that there is far less transparency in the economic system, in a, in a tax system, about what the actual effects of, of the taxes are. Um, you know, the folks in, in, in Europe, it's very clear what they're, what they're actually paying in exchange for the higher government services. Uh, here, if it's, if it's mainly paid for instead of a, by a, via tax, um, it's paid for in the form of lower innovation or slower growth, um, that's actually hiding the ball a bit about what the actual trade-offs are. Um, and, and that's something just to reinforce is that um, no matter where you stand on this on this uh, issue of how much government, how big government should be, at the very least, we need to be honest about the trade-offs involved uh, and, and weigh those trade-offs appropriately. Um, and unfortunately, at, the, at this state in the conversation, um, when it comes to the future of tax policy in the U.S., um, we haven't gotten to that point. And that's a, that's a big priority for us is just at least setting the rules of the game in terms of what the trade-offs are. And then folks can make that decision once they, they have more knowledge about uh, what they'll be giving up in exchange for that bigger government. Yeah. One of those trade-offs that you mentioned I want to come back to is the idea of capital investments uh, increasing the productivity of, of workers and of people in the middle class, people who are maybe not even yet in the middle class, that, that new technology benefits workers, maybe even disproportionately, because it makes their labor more valuable. And in thinking about Elizabeth Warren's big list of, of scapegoats, that would include someone like Jeff Bezos, uh, who employs a good number of people all around the country. Uh, and he's been, uh, we, we could have a whole separate conversation about the crony capitalism behind his push for a, a, a federal minimum wage, 
which would be make it so that that uh, everyone would have to pay what he's already voluntarily decided to pay his employees, and it would just be kind of an anti-competitive practice in a way for the the competitors to Amazon. But one thing, another personal anecdote with Amazon's uh, direct press, the Kindle direct press. This is you know partly a, it's a technology that has uh, become so efficient and has dominated the market because. Amazon can go direct to print with uh, with with books, and it's created this whole market for independent publishing. So Bob Zadek, he has his books through the Amazon Direct Press, and people can find those on our website. Uh, we've got books; they're books of uh, compiled interviews. They're the kinds of things that wouldn't necessarily find an audience with a traditional publisher, but uh, but with through Amazon Direct Press, it becomes possible. And this is just one way that technology gives people opportunities to be entrepreneurs themselves or in working for another person to, to increase their productivity, even if it's just the worker at, um, you know, whether it's a factory worker or a, a service worker, or a healthcare worker. Um, do you have any kind of favorite examples of what that looks like in the real world, how, how the te- technological innovation ends up boosting worker productivity? For, for sure. There, there um, are, are a ton of examples, even, even most recently in terms of um, not, not just worker productivity, but also just consumer benefit and uh, ultimately uh, just a better quality of life. Um, an amazing one that um, and it's actually a pretty large innovation that may have saving a lot of lives that's really struck me over the past few years has been the advancement um, in, uh, in radiology. So it's a more niche example, but actually has a pretty big ramification. Um, you have a lot of software engineers and, and tech firms working on uh, what is known as machine learning, uh, which is basically having... Uh, put very simply, machines be able to predict uh, the, in this case, whether or not someone has a tumor in their, uh, like a brain tumor, for example. Uh, it's very hard to be able to tell, especially early on, uh, even using trained, uh, trained doctors, for example, uh, who are highly trained and have a lot of experience to figure out, to predict whether or not a tumor actually will arrive, whether or not it's um, uh, malignant, right, and, and what your life expectancy is. Um, and what we're seeing is rapid advancements in machine learning where uh, artificial intelligence can actually do a better job predicting this years in advance than doctors can. Um, same is true of, uh, of conditions like Alzheimer's, where artificial intelligence can actually predict this um, uh, far in advance of what, uh, what uh, conventionally could be. Um, and this will have wide-ranging ramifications in the long run to our health. Uh, and, and this can only be done um, if folks uh, have the ability to and feel comfortable with taking the risk to uh, to um, to make those innovations uh, real, um, and of course, it's making the existing workers in the healthcare system more productive, right? You think of doctors who are uh, cross-checking these uh, these uh, these scans and um, working collaboratively with these systems. It's making them much better doctors in terms of the predictive ability and power. Um, and so, I think it's a good example both of showing increased productivity, but how it also cashes out into people's lives day to day. Uh, in that, you know, hopefully one day we'll be able to predict these things well in advance so that they're actually treatable, uh, where right now they're not. Um, and so th- I think in the, in the long run, that, that's how you can translate the more abstract question of tax rates and, and the importance of innovation entrepreneurship to people's day-to-day lives. This is kind of the flip side of another phenomenon related to technology that you hear about, which is the creative destruction and the, the fact that some innovations uh, might actually replace workers, what do you think is the net trade-off with a, a, a more dynamic economy? Do you think that it is faster at creating new jobs and increasing productivity, or is it, uh, is it doing away in, in the current, I mean, in the year 2019, are most investments in new technology replacing workers, or are they creating new jobs? Uh, on net, they are they are uh, creating new jobs. Uh, there still is a lot of disruption in terms of uh, the net uh, impact on existing jobs. Um, but of course, the 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 issue right now, of course, is that there's just not enough jobs being, uh, if anything, being destroyed. Uh, the the average amount of time people spend in their jobs is actually going up relative to the the recent past. Uh, and so there's actually some some evidence that the labor market is uh, ossifying a little bit. There's less turnover. Um, and than it used to be. And so there is a little bit of a disconnect between the perception that technological advancement is either becoming more rapid or actually more disruptive in the labor force and, um, and, then, and then what the data shows us, which is actually there's a bit more, um, less turnover overall. Uh, but all the evidence on, on, the, on the advancements in the past have suggested that, yes, there's going to be disruption in the form of destruction of existing jobs, 
um, but they are usually more than made up for by the creation of new jobs um, that are uh, allowed to be created due to the advancement in that uh, in that technology, uh, creating new, even entirely new industries that wouldn't have existed otherwise. If you think of even just the creation of of tech apps, for example, and all the related infrastructure to that, that, that did not even exist 10 years ago. Uh, and now it's it's employing tens of thousands of people at uh, in high wage occupations. And so um, the big question there is how do you think about public policy to uh, mitigate some of that disruption? Uh, are, are there creative ways to do that while also allowing for dynamism to take hold and for there not to be a backlash against that dynamism so there isn't as much fear of it, um, of it coming about? It's uh, another lesson. We've had many of them in this hour uh, about the, the seen versus the unseen. It's the, the, the old mm-hmm. economics in one lesson where we, we have the visible impacts of the policy, but then beneath us, if we scratch beneath the surface, we find that there is something different altogether going on. Garrett, how can people follow your work? Uh, you can follow my written work at taxfoundation.org. Uh, you can also uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at GS underscore Watson. And last question here. Do you think that Elizabeth Warren is has a, has a shot? What's the word? Talk of the town in D.C. Are people, uh, mm. it sort of sends a shiver up my spine, but do, do you think that this is, she's likely to be the, the Democratic nominee? I know it's still early, but. Yeah, it seems like the, the consensus is that she's definitely in the race uh, and uh, a viable candidate, uh, though uh, the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party seems to be uh, responding uh, in in uh, response to this, uh, we're seeing, of course, uh, the vice, former Vice President Biden still maintains um, a decent following in the polls, and uh, and we're actually seeing a rise of some folks like Pete Buttigieg who are trying to maintain a separate sort of brand from the sort of left wing populism of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, um, and they all seem pretty viable, um, all four of them, particularly in the early primary states, and, and so it's definitely still an open race. Other people are still entering into the race, of course. I mean, there's there's still that sort of divide between or moderate establishment Democrats and this new brand of, of, uh, of left populism. So that, that, that's still, still to be seen who will end up winning that. And there's actually a lot of, I think, parallels to what happened in the GOP in 16. Something we'll be keeping a close eye on in terms of the tax ramifications, for sure. Keep up the good work, uh, Garrett, at the Tax Foundation. Uh, you guys are helping to kind of nip these ideas in the bud, I guess. If Garrett, thanks so that's much right. for joining us. Closing words. Thank you. And yeah, we'll, we'll still be here to educate uh, both policymakers and taxpayers on how to not just stop bad ideas, but yeah, move the tax system in a, in, a, in a smarter, simpler direction for everyone. All right. Thanks, Garrett. And so long for now to our listeners out there. Bob will be back next week with another edition of the Show of Ideas, Not Attitude.